Hello. Um, scripture reading will be from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14 today. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give you daughters in marriage, that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying <laughs> to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring to you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Thank you, Lily. So we are in a series entitled, This Is Us. And the point of it is to, well, tell you exactly who New Life is. So if this is your first Sunday here with us, um, this is actually a great time. Because even though you're coming in the middle of the series, you're going to hear exactly what kind of church we aspire to be, what kind of church we hope we are, what kind of church we're asking God to help us to be. And as we've done that, we've looked at sort of the new mission and vision statement that we've laid out um, that Pastor Jeff has walked us through the last few weeks. And the mission of New Life is this, is to lead people to Jesus and mature disciples in him. And that's not very creative, I'll be completely honest with you. It comes right from Jesus himself. Go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, right? That's Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Here's our vision, is that as we make disciples, that as we seek to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to do as his people, that here's what we would hope to see happen in this city. Our vision is to see a gospel movement where lives radically change, families flourish, and our cities prosper. And it's been great to hear from so many of you how that vision has really captured your imagination, really ignited you, that, yeah, that's exactly what we want to see as a church. This is what we want to be about, not just creating a great church for ourselves, but creating a great city for everyone. And in our very first look at this mission and vision statement, Pastor Jeff used the analogy of the Dead Sea. 
It's this place where basically there's no way out. The sea itself, um, its salinity is so high that you're actually more buoyant in the water. And the reason it's called the Dead Sea is because everything rolls into it and just suffers and dies. And that instead, we want to be a stream, right, that, that has waters flowing into it. God's grace flows into us, but also through us and out to the world. And the fact of the matter is, is that if we're trying to build a great church, but not a great city, we'll end up with neither. But if we try to build a great city, if we seek the prospering of the city, if we seek to radically change lives, to see families flourish, if we seek to live outwardly, missionally, then that actually will help us to build a great church. So what this is going to require as we've talked through some of the values that we have as we see this happen is that we want to be a safe refuge. And so we looked at Jesus' interaction with the woman who, who washes his feet with her tears. We want to be gospel-centered. That is, how do our lives radically change? That God changes our life not by demanding us to come to him, clean our lives up, but instead by coming to us and then helping us, empowering us to change our lives. And today, we want to look at this next value, and that is we want to be missional. That the only way to seek the prospering of the city, to seek radically transformed lives, to seek families that flourish, is we have to be what's called, we have to have a missional mindset. We have to have a missional mindset. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what do we mean by that exactly? What is a missional mindset? How then do we live missionally? And then why should we live missionally? So what does it mean to be missional? How should we be missional? Why should we be missional? Now, I should preface right up in front, just in case I, I slip here. This was a foundational text that we just read for our, our, our summer camp for the kids this last summer. Right? So for those of you who already have the You Will Seek Me and Find Me song from VBS playing in the background of your mind, I'm right there with you. We're on the same wavelength. I'm tracking. Yeah, I can see the hand motions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you'll seek me, you'll find me. We wanted to make it clear for these kids, like this is what God offers to you, a real relationship with him. But this was also a foundational text as the, the student ministry, right? So our middle school and high school students looked at the book of Daniel because Jeremiah is actually writing to the people in, in that time, the book of Daniel, for how they should live in a world that's not, well, it's a world that's pluralistic, that doesn't all agree on things that are spiritually. It's a world that can be beautiful, but also a world that can be beautiful and broken. And how are we to live as Christians in a world, in a society like that, when we live in not Jerusalem, but we live in Babylon? And how does that play out? Right? So I'll try not to sneak in any TikTok or Kanye or Dwayne The Rock Johnson jokes as we go through this as well. So let's get to that first one. What do we mean by missional? What do we mean that we have to be missional? Well, the word mission or missional just comes from the, the Latin word missio, that is to be sent. And we see that right here in the text in verse 4 where he says, The God of Israel is to all the exiles whom I have sent. Missional is this idea of you have a special assignment that you've been sent this way. So to be missional is actually going to require us to change how we think about the very story of our lives, our own mission. 
Because you see, the stories that we live by really shape us. They form how we live. As Jonathan Haidt says, the human mind is a story processor, not a logic processor. That we form everything through these stories. Here's, let me give you a, a great way of how stories are so powerful in shaping our lives. In 2009, Joshua Glenn and Rob Walker designed a human experiment called Significant Objects. Now, let me just say up front, I'm always hesitant to quote sociological psychology studies because if you've heard of the replication problem, right, so like you hear of this great study from Stanford in the 50s and then you find out the whole thing was a fraud and you're like, oh, well, now that's in my sermon, okay? So that's always tricky and difficult, but this one, the data's out there, right? And I'm not going to stretch the story too far, I hope, but here's what they did. They had like 100 people go out, buy stuff at like thrift stores, um, for no more, the average price was $1.25, $1.25. And then they had these people, more than 100 of them, write stories that went with it. Now, they intentionally tried to write stories that weren't making it look like it was a lie, right? But that was like, hey, this is a made-up story. So they were pretty outlandish and ridiculous. But here's the thing. They compared the items that they would put on eBay without stories and then items with these made-up stories and they spent an average of, just in the first four months of the study, $128 is what they spent. And the result, by just adding stories to these ridiculous items, you can go look and see all the pictures of the items. It's like a golden bunny candle that's like chipped away, right? Or like a little Russian doll or this weird like sun candle abra thing. Again, all stuff that they bought, average price $1.25 at their own thrift stores, they put it on eBay, they attached a story to it. They gave it a little bit of significance. And they intentionally tried to make the story seem fake. But just by putting the story to it, they sold a total of $3,612.51. The average price for the items they sold on eBay was in like the $45 range. And that's with fake stories. Okay, now we all have stories that inform our lives as well, right? You're driving down the highway, someone swerves across like five lanes to get through you know, the exit line, and you're like, what a jerk. You know, they didn't want to wait in the line with the rest of us as we're trying to exit. They just went around, sideswiped in, dangerous, probably got into a wreck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? You formed a story there. And so behind your anger or your contempt was a story. But what if you realized, like, no, that's a husband who is just trying to find the hospital because his wife's in the middle of giving birth? You'd be like, oh, please, by all means, right in front, if you knew the story. Is that it would change everything about it, right? You text your spouse or you ask a friend, hey, you want to go do this thing? And they're like, no, I'm tired. And immediately you're like, great. What's wrong with the relationship? What's going on? They don't want to hang out with me anymore. There's a story that's forming. Rather than like, oh, wow, maybe they've actually been working 80 hours this week and they really are tired. What could I do to help them? You see, we could just go on and on and on and on that we have these stories. But you see, here's the thing is that if you notice that the Bible itself, one gigantic story. And I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says this, it's significant that God does not present us with salvation in the form of an abstract truth or a precise definition or a catchy slogan, but as story. Story is an invitation to participate First through our imagination, then, if we will, by faith with our total lives in response 
to God. You see, everything is formed by the story that we think we're living by. That what informs your view of the good life, what informs success, what informs how you react in certain situations, it's all based on this narrative that you have running. And you see, the Bible reframes the narrative for us. And you may think, well, why are we looking at Jeremiah 29? Why aren't we looking at the New Testament, which talks about how we're supposed to reframe and rethink of ourselves as the church? And the reason is, is because in the New Testament, when they want to get across the story that we're supposed to be living by in our society today, how we're supposed to be being sent, changing the mission, the call of our lives, they actually appeal to Jeremiah 29. You see here in 1 Peter chapter 1, the very first line, he opens with this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he goes on in chapter 2, to those who are elect exiles, to those who are resident aliens, is another translation here. And then even he closes the book, she who is in Babylon, he's talking about a code word, not the actual Babylon, he's writing from Rome, but he's using this concept of how we understand ourselves as exiles who live in Babylon, even though they were Jews who lived in Rome or Christians who had converted from paganism and lived in Rome and lived in this dispersion in all these different cities. James does the same thing. Again, opening lines of the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings. Or you may see a translation that says, those in the dispersion, that God has exiled us, not in the sense that he's punishing us for that, like we'll see here in the story, but that that's how we're to live our lives. And again, they use this theme of exiles living in Babylon, even though at that time, Rome was the dominant superpower. That's where they lived. You see, Babylon's mentioned over 92 times in the Bible, as early as Genesis 11, right? And then, of course, as late as the book of Revelation. Because what Babylon stands for is in this story, of course, the city, the dominant superpower during the time of Jeremiah, which is around 597 BC, 600 BC, right? But it also stands for all of the worldly systems, the cities that aren't bowing the knee to Jesus. So it's used to represent a city system that just isn't serving God. And that we're supposed to enter into our city here in Irvine as exiles living amongst a city that isn't serving God. And so that takes us to our very next point then. So if that's what it means to be missional, to see ourselves as sent by God, commissioned on special assignment from him, how do we do that? What's that going to look like? So how does Jeremiah 29, that all these New Testament writers look back on, how does Jeremiah 29 tell us what to do? Well, to get to that, to see how is it we're supposed to see cities flourish, right? our city flourish, um, you have to see that there's three competing stories in this little story here. All right? Here's what I mean. So if you were to back up to verse 1 of Jeremiah 29, you would see that it's, it's that everyone has just been taken from Jerusalem into exile. And it's all of the royal families, the wise people, the artisans, the craftsmen, all the elites, right, have been taken. Now, you know, a few years later, they're basically going to destroy the whole city. But for now, what you have is you have this group of exiles who have been taken by Babylon in order to basically 
squelch any rebellion from the city of Jerusalem and the kingdom there. And so they've taken these exiles, and this is, again, these are, you read about them in the story, the book of Daniel, what this looks like. And here's what Babylon realized. As Babylon realized, you know, if you're going to do this world domination thing, there's a few mistakes you got to avoid. One, avoid killing everyone, because then you don't have any slaves afterwards, right? So that's a problem. Number two, um, it's probably not good to just like subjugate them too harshly, because they just keep rising up, rising up, rising up, and that doesn't work out too well. So what they learned is that, well, what if we took all the elites, brought them to us, and had them assimilate into our society? So Babylon has a story for these people's lives. Babylon's mission is for these exiles to realign themselves with the city, to realign with the city, to lose their spiritual identity. Because think about it, just in a few years, everyone's like, man, being Babylonian is awesome. You've got these gardens, you've got this awesome economic society. This is fantastic. And yet they're also Jewish, and they're like, well, why don't we just all like, get along with the system? Like, if we all get along, if we all realign with the city of Babylon, we'll prosper. We'll lose our identity spiritually, but that's a small price to pay for prospering, right? So you see this in the book of Daniel again, uh, where Daniel's name means God is my judge, but when he gets brought into the king's court, it's changed to Belteshazzar, that is, Baal protects the king. That is, how can we change their identities, realign them with the city? Look at how great Babylon is. And this is the same tension we experience today, is it not? Just go along with the system. Like, realign here. You know, if you don't, and you're on social media, we'll cancel you. But, like, that's a, like just go along with it. Like, Jesus can be your Lord, but, you know... Don't thrust on everyone else. Be quiet about it and just go along with the thing. Like, do the loving, nice, kind Jesus, not the serve me, I'm the only way, the truth, the life Jesus, right? Well, that's the first competing mission, is Babylon's mission, to realign with the city. The second competing mission is to retreat from the city, and this comes from the false prophets. We see this in verses um, 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and don't listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. Here's the lie we can read in, earlier in chapter 28 and in other sections of the book of Jeremiah, is the lie was, guys, it's only going to be two years, and then God's going to come back in here, and he is going to break Babylon. So let's all retreat from the city. Don't realign with the city, retreat from it, separate from it. And so they literally had a little spot over by the uh, uh, Kabar Canal where they would live outside the city. And so this is just tribalism. This idea of we don't like that city, we hate that city. I mean, for one, look at all the injustice the city has brought upon us, right? They've exiled us here, they've captured us here, we're slaves here. But on top of that, right, let's just... Let's use the city for what we can. So, like, let's get rich off Babylon, but the all important thing is to make our tribe rich, not to serve the city. We're going to retreat from it. And they look at it with disdain. You use the city, you despise the city. 
Those are the competing stories, the competing narratives. And God says, no, my mission is that you would seek to renew the city. See, Babylon wants you to realign with the city and lose your spiritual identity. The false prophets are saying, no, 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 no. Let's retreat from the city, keep our spiritual identity, because God's coming. It's only going to be two years. But God says, no, it's going to be 70 years. And there's a reason for that, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I want you to seek to renew the city so that actually your spiritual identity will flourish. You'll flourish. Now, to be honest, if you were hearing Jeremiah's letter and you had the option between 70 years captivity or two years captivity, right? Jeremiah quickly starts to sound like he works for the Irvine company, right? Or he works for the Great Park, like happiness is found here. Come by, four bedroom house, three baths, right? Um, you're just like, what? Right? So he's, because he's clearly competing with the narrative of the false prophets. He tells them, settle in. These ordinary tasks that he, he points out to them, right? Take wives, have sons, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat, bear sons, seek the welfare. All of those things are going to take time to build houses, take seasons to plant and harvest, right? And take generations to have these children who rise up and then marry other children. So settle in, own the city. But he's also competing with the narrative of the false prophets, because, or excuse me, of Babylon, because he's saying, I want you to multiply here. Don't lose your spiritual identity. I want you to grow and multiply. Don't decrease. And all of that is to lead to our spiritual flourishing. All right, so let's dive in a little bit more where he gets to here in verse 7, where he says, seek the welfare of the city. Maybe you have a translation that says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And if you read other translations, there would be different takes on this because that word, right, welfare, um, is actually the Hebrew word shalom. And we talk about this a lot, but shalom is this idea of seeking the total flourishing of humanity in every dimension, every aspect of society, both personally and publicly, and if you want to know probably the best way to get at, like, what does shalom mean? It's peace, prosperity, welfare, flourishing. Well, probably the best way is to see where was shalom lost and what happened when it was lost. And to that, we would go back to, because remember, the, the Bible's one big story, that the shalom was initially established by God in the Garden of Eden. And when shalom was lost, when shalom was lost, four things came in. We were alienated broken, fallen spiritually, obviously, right? We sinned. We're separated from God. We had to leave the garden. God had to leave his presence from his people. And then you see the physical brokenness, right? Disease, decay, death. And then the psychological aspect to that, that there is shame that immediately comes upon Adam and Eve, and then, of course, because of that, then the social aspects, that they're cut off from God, alienated, broken in their relationship with him. It then becomes broken in their relationship with everyone else. And this is social. And then, of course, as societies grow, it becomes economic and political. And all of these systems have lost shalom. And what God is telling the exiles is, is that I want you to own the city, move in. I want you to try and renew the shalom here, to seek it 
I mean, that word seek brings with it this connotation of like something that you really want, something that you're passionate about pursuing, that God wants them to pursue that. And of course, this is exactly Jesus's mission. When he steps into, into ministry, one of the first texts that he reads is in Luke chapter four. He reads from the Isaiah scroll and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed flee, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All four of those aspects where shalom has been lost, spiritual, physical, psychological, emotional, right? And social. Jesus says, I've come in to enter into all of these. So that means proclaiming how we are right with God, but that means doing these things. This is why Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, right, that we're to be a city on a hill, salt and light. That is, we're, we're bringing good flavor. We're preserving things from decaying. We're, we're bringing in the truth, right, which certainly can sometimes be met with resistance, and sometimes we need to come with resistance to how systems are happening, to stand against injustice, right? But we're here as a city inside this other city, showing that we have different values, that we live differently on, based on the kingdom of God, not based on the city values here, that we maintain our spiritual identities, but at the same time, we seek the best for the places in the communities where we live. This is your home, your workplace, Irvine, Orange County, California, right? And then, of course, it takes it a step further because the objection here might be, well, this is just, I mean, of course, this is pragmatic, right? Like, look at this nice facility. This happens because, you know, we live here and we pay taxes and we try and make things good for Irvine. So, like, so what's good for the goose, good for the gander? Like, this is great. Like, nice, but you see, it's more than just using the city because then you can benefit and get good things from it. Like where it's like, well, of course I want to live here and things to go nice because then I get to live in a nice place because he tells them to pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, this would have been radical. This is radical because remember, Babylon has killed their family members. Babylon has completely removed them from their city has completely destroyed everything they knew about their lives, every, all their hopes and dreams for their future. Babylon has ruined all of that, and yet here we have what scholars point and show is the closest thing to the explicit command to love your enemies in the Old Testament. And actually, when you think about it, the New Testament commands to love our enemies, read in light of this text, this might even surpass that when you think about the atrocities that Babylon inflicted upon these exiles. And now here they are to pray for them. Because these exiles would have been comfortable with praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But now they're being told to pray for the peace, the shalom of Babylon? It would have sounded like this from Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. 
That's a radical way to live. See, let me just pause for a minute and talk about some of the dangers that as we try to adopt this narrative for us. How do we live as exiles here in Orange County? Right? How do you live as an exile in, in your world, your community today? Well, obviously, the dangers are the same. You can realign with the city, totally lose your spiritual identity, sell out, bow the knee to whatever forces are around you, and not bow the knee ultimately to Jesus, or just like separate kind of Jesus as my private thing, but not my public thing. Well, we're told that's not an option for God's people. The other option is just like totally separate, you know? So like, you probably know some of these people, okay? Because where you live in California, and it's like every one of my neighbors is always moving to Texas or Portland or Idaho, right? So what happens when you find out, right, your, your neighbor is immediately like, okay, yeah, it's it. We're moving to Texas. We're out of here. What happens? Right, you know, I mean, they complain more about the politics here and the taxes here, right? And they just go on and on about how great it's going to be when they finally get to Texas and they can live and breathe American freedom, right? And the whole thing is built around, right, I disdain this place that I live in. I'm going to use it. I'm going to make the money that I can now. But as soon as we can, we're out of here, okay? Now, I'm not saying that's the wrong way to live and that thou shall not move to Texas, I mean, it'd be nice if some of our friends stayed here, though. Okay, I'll just put that out there. So, but, uh, but you see, if you, we live here and we're just basically consumers where, like, we'll get what we can get from this place. Like, this is great. I love my, I love my amenities in Irvine, right? Or I love, like, how close we are to the beach and the mountains. But ultimately, I'm not here to own it and try and make this place better. That's just consumerism. But on the other hand, if all we come in is with mission, mission, I hate this place, but I'm going to live here, and I'm going to try and help, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just a soft form of colonialism, right? Like, we don't own it, but let's face it, my biggest temptation is just kind of a complacency. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you know, and yeah, we should make this place better, and yeah, Irvine. And I'm not really passionate about either sometimes. And you just, it's because the narrative of your life has been lost from exile, so just like, just make it through this week. You know, make it through the day. Make it to, and you see what's happening is right there. We're, we're realigning actually with the city because we're just being exhausted, living up to the same values that the city would have. But we're also exhausted because we feel like we're not living up to the values that the church has and that our spiritually God would have for us. And so from either side, you're just kind of worn down and you've lost your joy and you're thinking, how do I make it through this? You see, this is what we're called to, to be missional. And that takes us to this last point then. So how is it that we actually do this? Or rather, why live this way? Because, I mean, it does sound exhausting. Like, I'm supposed to navigate how to be a Christian and be faithful to Jesus in a world that doesn't always want me to do that. And I'm supposed to try and make that city better, make these communities better, but at the same time, oh, man, I'm supposed to, well, they need volunteers in the nursery, and, you know, they got to go to life group, and it, the to-dos can just start to pile up, Right? You know, and you, you get the pressure from both sides. 
Like, well, a really successful worker here. I mean, I know you can leave at five, but like, I mean, who leaves at five? Right? Or the real new lifers, they don't just come early on Sunday. They're also this, 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 and this. And so the pressure sets in from both sides. And the question is, is why push through the difficulty? Why be missional? Right? And the first point I would say is that the way we're going to find the power to do this is when we recognize where it says right there in verse 4 that we are sent. It says, so all the exiles to whom I have sent. You see, what this means is, if you were to compare that with verse 1, where it says that Babylon carried them into exile, King Nebuchadnezzar carried them into exile, is God is saying, look, I know this is difficult, but you're not just a victim of your circumstances, I promise. You're not just a victim of the things that have happened to you in your life. I actually have, as verse 11 says, a plan for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Because they're obviously victims of Babylon, but when you think about why are they in exile in the first place? Why did God let any of this happen? Well, honestly, it was because God's people were called to live as Jerusalem, a beacon, a city on a hill, salt and light in the world, and they refused to do it. And they turned away from God's mission. And therefore, God let Babylon just take them over as judgment for them. But God is saying, even in your circumstances where you don't feel like the victim, but you feel like you're the villain here, you deserve this, and how could God use you again? And how is it you're going to move on? And honestly, your hope, your future, well, just kiss that goodbye because this is your lot in life for the rest of your life. God is saying that is not true either. I mean, this is what Jeff was going on about during the confession time. He's saying that whether, you know, you are the victim or whether you are the villain, God has a mission for you. And there is a different story for your life than the one that this world would want to thrust upon you. That you are sent they pick this up in the book of, uh, of Acts. In verse 17, Paul says, For one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him to find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is saying he has appointed you to be exactly where you are today. You're not out of step. There is no plan B. You are exactly where God wants you. Now, God may want you to be making some different choices, right? God may be wanting you to repent and, and seek him and find him, as, as this would say, to not realign with the city, to not retreat from the city, but to lean into renewing the city so that you could flourish spiritually. There certainly may be some changes for you, but the fact of the matter is, is your hope, your future has not been sealed except for goodness, that God has plans for you, that he has sent you. I love how this is illustrated in the life of someone who I spend a lot of my time with, and that is John Coltrane, right? Because, you know, a huge difference between my wife and I is that she's constantly working in silence and can focus, and, you know, my mind is the internet browser with 17 open tabs, three are frozen, and I don't know where the music's coming from, right? You've, you've seen that? You know, that's me, and so I got to have something to kind of carry me along through the day, and that, for me, that's jazz, 
And John Coltrane, you know, of course, is one of the most famous jazz virtuosos. And in the early 50s, at the pinnacle of his career, he's playing on the number one jazz album of all time, Kind of Blue. He actually gets kicked out of his quartet because of alcoholism and his addiction to heroin. And as he almost loses his life in 1957, he says this in the liner notes of A Love Supreme. He says, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which has led me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. And it's said in uh, Oz Guinness's book, The Call, he recounts this story where, for the live performance of A Love Supreme, Coltrane steps down from the stage and they can hear him whisper to himself, Nunc Dimittis, which is Latin, and it comes from the Advent story in Luke chapter 2, I believe, um, which is Simeon. Simeon sees Jesus and he says, Nunc Dimittis, I can die in peace now. I'm at rest, it is well with my soul, because... I've seen the Lord's salvation come here. And Coltrane is saying as he steps down from that stage that he is living so in line with God's mission to make the flourishing of the world, to see the city prosper, that it has renewed him spiritually as well. So that's why we're missional. It's because we've been sent. But not only that, it says in verse 10 that we're here, they're there for Babylon. Now, there's a few ways to see that. I think the first is to see that, well, God has plans for Babylon. God's totally in control of this superpower. God's totally in control of things that are happening. It's not out of the realm of what he has intended for life. But not only that, the Israelites, those from Jerusalem, are in captivity in Babylon for Babylon, for them to be exposed to the scriptures for them to be exposed to the narrative plan of God, for them to see well, how they actually might find shalom if they turn and put their faith in him. You know, this is what God says to Jonah. Should I not love that great city? And so this is why when you hear about the wise men this uh, Advent season as we lead up to Christmas and how they visit Jesus, there are theories that the wise men from the East were actually wise men in a long line of wise men who would have rubbed shoulders with the exiles and thus awaited the Savior, the Messiah, just like all the rest of Israel did and then made their pilgrimage when they saw his star. So we're here for Babylon, but I think to really tie this up to end our time, the reason why we do this is because of the promise here. Notice back in verse 7, for in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. What's the connection there? See, God's making an astounding point to say that the city is going to be blessed through you, but guess what? You're going to be blessed through ministry in the city. If you want to know how to flourish spiritually 
It's not going to be by retreating. It's not going to be by realigning and just keeping your head down low. It's going to be by seeking to renew the city, renew its shalom. And the more that you seek to do that out there, the more we get that in here. The more that we work the gospel out in our communities, the more the gospel gets worked into our own hearts. And this is why Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, because then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is what we're invited into, to live missionally, to live by a different story, to have a a totally new meaning given to our lives, a meaning that suffering can't take away, exile can't take away, but actually leaning into seeing ourselves as exiles in this city, seeking its prosperity, all facets of shalom, seeking to renew the city, right? This is why the, the mental health support group is called Renew, so that we actually can bring shalom, right, into all aspects of our lives. Because here's the other option. As Tony DeMello writes in his song um, of the bird, he writes about a farmer who found an eagle's egg. The farmer takes that eagle's egg and puts it in with his hens. And as it hatches and grows, it thinks it's a chicken. And so the eagle does what chickens do. It hunts for worms. It pecks on the grounds. When, you know, it flaps its wings, it's only like that half chicken flap to like fly over a fence or something. But not not what eagles do. And as the eagle gets old and lives this way, one day it looks up and it sees this majestic bird flying in the sky, soaring. And so the eagle kind of looks over at its neighbors, because apparently these birds can talk, um, is, uh, and he's like, what? What's that? He's like, oh, that's, that's an eagle. That's a king of the skies. They soar, they fly. You know, but we're, we're chickens. We're birds of the earth. And the eagle lives its life as a chicken and dies. So the question for us is, what's the story we're going to live by? And are we going to get to the end of this life and realize that we were eagles all along who unfortunately sold out to the city and lived like chickens or sold out to just separating and not leaning in and became kind of tribalistic and just lived like birds of the earth rather than soaring like eagles, right? How do we not turn into the Dead Sea? It's by seeking the renewal of the city. Because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the ultimate exile who enters into, well, Babylon. No, he entered into Jerusalem. He was persecuted. He was dragged outside that city, crucified. He lost everything so that we could gain everything. And he invites us into this story with him as we look forward to the heavenly city bringing total and complete shalom. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to live our lives in light of your story, in light of this narrative. God, to not settle for less, 
But Lord, we're also asking for strength, for inspiration, for endurance, because it can so easily become just draining to feel the pressures from our communities, the pressures from our church, when all the while, Father, you're inviting us into a totally different story, not to earn what you've offered us, but to live in light of it freely as your children, that we're exiles here because we are citizens of your kingdom. So help us to do that, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.